Hey there everybody and welcome back. I am in the second lesson in my series that I'm calling Acting Like Paul and Becoming Like David. And in this series, we're going to look at disobedient Saul and then how God moves on from that disobedience to select Saul. So in our first lesson, we learned that Saul is a choleric personality. He started out really strong as Israel's first king, and he used those choleric personality skills to his advantage. It was a, a wonderful selection from all appearances, and that's what it boiled down to, just the appearance. And yet his power and his pride got in the way, and he began to make foolish and disobedient decisions. Paul, Saul never seemed to learn from the lessons of the past. He had many successes in battle, in spite of not taking care of his troops and even threatening to kill his own son. God had already told Samuel, that Saul could not continue as king, and he had said he wanted someone whose heart would remain faithful to him. Well, let's see what happens in the next episode. God had given Saul everything he needed to succeed. He even renewed him, and he gave him a new heart, and he set him off to succeed. But he falls time after time by his foolish choices. So we're going to look at 1 Samuel 15, and we're going to see four steps of further decline. We're going to see his disobedience, his pride, his self-deception, and then eventually his rejection. So we're looking at 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 through 11. One day Samuel said to Saul, it was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of his people, Israel. Now listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation, men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. So Paul mobilized his army, and there were 200,000 soldiers from Israel and 10,000 men from Judah. Then Saul and his army went to a town of the Amalekites and lay in wait in the valley. Saul sent his warning to the Kenites, Move away from where the Amalekites live, or you will die with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites packed up and left. Then Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the Amalekite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep and goats, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. Why did God now, first of all, command the full destruction of the Amalekites? In, in our world, we see that as such harshness coming from God. But here is why God did this. They were this band of what we would call guerrilla terrorists. They had made a practice of attacking other nations and then taking their wealth and their families. Well, God knew that the Israelites would never have peace in the promised land as long as the Amalekites 
Amalekites were on the run. And so he, he knew that it was for the good of his promised nation to do this. These Amalekites were pagans and would continue to in influence his people. Well, it's hard for, hard for us to understand that God wanted to kill an entire population. But this was such a unique time in Israel's history, history and God was working to protect his people and to build a kingdom. It's not always easy to understand God's ways, is it? His ways are not our ways. We don't always understand. And I'm sure this was hard for Saul to understand also. But we still must obey when God gives a command. So Saul slaughtered the Amalekites as God instructed, but he did not completely fulfill God's commands. He spared the king. He kept the king and the, and the best of everything that was, was left. It was a blatant disregard for full, fully obeying God's laws. And do you know that that was punishable by death? Saul thought he could just pick and choose pieces of what God had told him to do. But he didn't fully obey the law. He didn't take full ownership either. Uh, when he was confronted, he wanted to pass the buck. You know, he, what he didn't say was the buck stops here. I ordered this. No, he wanted then to play the blame game. Remember, Adam and Eve did the blame game also, and that didn't work out so well, did it? Remember, Adam blamed Eve and God, and then Eve blamed the serpent. And that's just not the way God wants it. So we see another sin here uh, from Saul, and that is blaming. We still blame people too, don't we? We still fear people more than God. And so we, uh, we want to protect ourselves and we fear backlash when, when we think we've done something wrong and it's just easier to blame other people. And so we, we fear that people are going to see us differently. They're going to react to us differently. So we are fearing people much like Saul did. We fear people. We fear losing people, losing friends, making somebody mad, disappointing somebody losing our social status, we fall into that same trap and we want to blame others. Well, Saul now is guilty of several things here. He didn't fully obey God's commands. We might be the same. We may pick and choose parts of the scripture that we want to obey, but we don't want to fully embrace God's plan. And then when things go wrong, we too want to point the finger at others. It's kind of natural for us to do that because we have a hard time facing our own shortcomings. You know, there's this real biological explanation for why we blame others. When good things happen, that sends these messages to our brains. And it, it goes into that prefrontal cortex right here. And it says, yay, something good is happening. This is awesome. Let me get all those wonderful, good endorphins and, and, and all the feel-good sensations. It's wonderful. But if something goes wrong and we mess up or somebody else mess up, messes up or we did something that we need to claim responsibility for but we're afraid to do that well that goes into the amygdala and it processes it there in that fight flight or freeze area of our brain and we go into defense 
mode. And that is what Saul did. He went to defense mode. This is happening really fast in our brain. And so we need to be careful to be, to be able to pause. Remember, that's one thing I teach consistently. Press pause. Um, and then to think twice, choose carefully before we say things. Otherwise, our brain there is trying to protect us in that, in that flight mode or in the freeze mode. And we just want to stop blame somebody else and move on. And so what we typically do is we blame something or someone who is closest to what the problem is and we blame. Wow. Can we just start pausing and confessing, admitting what we've done and then do the next right thing? That is what God wanted Saul to do, and he wa it's what he wants us to do instead of blaming other people. But Saul's pride typically gets in the way. Let's continue to read verse 10. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard that he cried out to the Lord all night. Well, God was sorry he made Saul king. He was showing sorrow. He was not admitting an error. Let's not confuse that. But he was sorry. He was filled with sorry, sorrow. See, Saul's poor decisions caused God to be sorrowful. And then Samuel cried out to the Lord all night in his own grief and sadness. Do you ever look around at others who are, are doing such wrong in the sight of God? And, and we feel that sorrow, that weight of pain, and it hurts. And this is what Samuel was feeling. Well, God was feeling that too. You know, we are reminded that we can grieve God as well. Remember in Ephesians 4:30 it says and do not bring sorrow to God's holy spirit by the way you live. Remember he has identified you as his own guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. When we don't get control of our own areas of weaknesses, our flaws, our sins, we bring sorrow to God. He wants to redeem us from our sins because we are His and we are called for a purpose. Let's use this as motivation for obedience to all of God's laws, for accepting responsibility and not shifting the blame. Well, Samuel goes the next morning to find Saul and tell him of God's sorrow. Do you know people who just don't get it? They just don't get the point. They are so self-absorbed, so living in their own world, their own kingdom, that they don't even get it when someone comes to share something about them. Here is who Saul is. And so he falls into this self-deception about who he is in God's sight. We read in verse 13, when Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. There's no remorse there. There's no recognition that he had done anything wrong. And he says, may the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's command. 
And then he goes on to justify his actions. He speaks a truth. Now listen to that. And then he adds a but. Well, it's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle, Saul admitted. But they're going to sacrifice them to the Lord. We have destroyed everything else. Hands on hip, puffed up about what he has done. See, Saul thinks he knows better than everybody else, including God. The biggest tragedy here is that he's not even aware of it. He's so self-absorbed. The story shows he is completely blind to his arrogance and always believes that he is in the right. Does that sound a little narcissistic to you? We're going to take a look at that in a little bit. He is deceived about who he is. Well, Samuel reminds Saul of the mission and God's clear instructions. Saul's pride and his blind spot keep him from seeing the truth. He justifies his actions by saying he killed the Amalekites, but kept the good so that he could sacrifice him. It kind of sounds like this. Yes, I stole the money, but I was going to put it in the offering plate. <laughs> See how it sounds so absurd? Saul thought he knew better than God what the plan should be. Verse 22, but Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat calf. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Those are some powerful words, aren't they? Samuel made it very clear, and I love that he said, listen, pay attention here. This is the theme we find over and over in Scripture. Obedience is better than sacrifice. It's found in numerous places in the Bible. Now, sacrifice is really important, but the motive and the actions need to be pure. If not, the sacrifice is hollow. This is a reminder that religious ceremonies and rituals that we might do, the things we might do in church and, and that we observe through different holiday seasons, for exa example, or, or Sunday morning rituals of a saying scripture or going for communion, those can be hollow if they're not performed with the right spirit and if we're not pure in heart. It's a reminder that these rituals are empty unless they are performed with this attitude of love and obedience. Otherwise, the rituals are just for show, and that's what Saul was guilty of. Saul was guilty of disobedience, rebellion, and stubborn pride. He went beyond just showing his independent thinking and how in his mind he thinks he could just make this a little better and a little bit easier for God. No, he was being strong-willed and he was being self-serving. And there was a consequences. See, as a result of this, God rejected him and he took him away from the kingdom of God.
There are always consequences when we do wrong. We want to get a hold of our stubbornness and our pride and our our thinking that we can just do part of God's commands. We he, he wants us all in. Well, let's look at Saul's feeble plea for forgiveness in verse 24. Then Saul admitted to Samuel, "Yes, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's commands." Then he gives his justification. For I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. Do you see, he had a choice, didn't he? He had a choice of who he feared. He could fear the, the Most High God and show respect and reverence for him. Or he could fear the people. Saul chose the people. And then he adds, but now, but now, after I've done all this, please forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. In, a, in an act of desperation, he says, he, he admits his guilt. But he also admits that he was fearful of the people. He did what they demanded. He, devout, he valued their opinion over God. And he lived in fear of the people. He wanted to go where they led him. So can God trust him? No, God could not trust him because he didn't go the next step and say, I realized that was so wrong. I need to be fearing God. And, and by that, I mean, I need to be worshiping him and living in awe of him and, and, and serving him and, and submitting to him only. You know, Jesus spoke of this, what we call religiosity which is just trying to impress others with our actions. He, he condemned the attitude in the Pharisees for this. And he said their religious activities were practiced only to make them look good in front of others. It, it's not that various offerings are bad, but when good works or spiritual disciplines are done while we are disobeying God's commands, or when we make a show of our works to get others' approval, then our sacrifices are a sham. Whether Paul was, Saul was later simply sorrow, sorry for his sin or, or if he gen, genuinely ever repented, there's little evidence to show that. There's little evidence to show that he completely wanted to walk connected to God, the scripture is clear. If that were true, it would have been included and we would have seen a change in Saul. Well, you know, today, even good activities such as giving money to charity and attending church services and praying in public even are not as important to God as obeying him. The scripture tells us obedience is much more important than sacrifices. Verse 26, Samuel replied, I will not go back with you. Since you have rejected the Lord's command, he has rejected you as king of Israel. Samuel's relationship with Saul has ended. Saul was self-righteous, while godly Samuel was zealous only for the glory of God. That's what God was looking for, being zealous for God. Verse 27, as Samuel turned to go, 
Saul tried to hold him back and he, he tore the hem of his robe. You can see that's an act of desperation. And, and Samuel, who dearly loved Saul and wanted Saul to be the man that God had called him to be, said, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to someone else, one who is better than you. And he who is the glory of Israel will not lie nor will he change his mind for he is not human that he should change his mind Samuel spoke the truth didn't he and he said God can't do this with you anymore God is such a patient God <clears throat> God allowed this to go on for a long time and then he said you're not changing so I'm changing the plan Saul's stubborn pride just wouldn't give up, though. He, he still hasn't hum humbled himself. He, he's now sounding like this whiny beggar. Listen to what he really wants in verse 30. Then Saul pleaded again. I know I've sinned, but please. And listen to this, his request. At least honor me before the elders of my people. Make a show. Make it look as if everything's okay with my people and before Israel <coughs> by coming back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. That was a little late, wasn't it? But here, Samuel, because he loved Saul, he did agree and went back with him and gave Saul this opportunity to worship the Lord. So Saul recognizes his sin, but what he really wants is to be honored by the people. That never changed. He wanted this public demonstration that, that Samuel supported him. I don't know how Samuel navigated through that. I, I, you know, I, I don't have the answer to that. Um, I just think it shows that Samuel was such a good, kind man. He at least wanted Saul to worship God. Samuel mourned Saul. He mourns him for a long time. We know this because God eventually says it's time to go. You know, that's a lesson for us, isn't it? When, when we've been disappointed and we have been through heartaches and, and we have either disappointed God or others, or, or we are in this situation that looks as if it's not changing, God eventually comes to us and says, it's time to go. It's time to go. It's time to go and find something new. And, and here is what God said to Samuel. It's time to find a new king. See, God was ready to move forward after a time of mourning. So God sent him to the home of Jesse, where he is to anoint the next king. So I love this scene. Samuel goes to the home of Jesse, and, and Jesse has seven sons at home, and there's one son, the youngest, is out in the fields. And so Samuel begins looking over the seven, and he begins with the one that must have looked most kingly in appearance. He probably looked brave and tough and kingly, maybe a little rough and tumble. But the Lord rejected him and said, man looks on the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. 
There we go again. You see what's important to God? The heart. He gave Saul a new heart, remember? And Saul didn't use his new heart very well, did he? And now he says, I'm looking for somebody with heart. It's going to have a heart for me. He's looking for a king that will have God's heart. Someone faithful and loyal. Well, Samuel looks over the next one and the next one and the next one. But with each one, God says, nope, not that one. No, 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 no. I'm looking inside. Uh, it's not the outward appearance I'm concerned about. It's the inward part I'm concerned about. And so Samuel finally says, hey, do you have anybody else? <laughs> Jesse kind of half mentions that, oh, yeah, there's young David, young David. But he's just a side to be in the fields where the sheep and the goats are. I'm kind of thinking little David would not be in the running. But Samuel says, send for him at once because Samuel was tuned into God. And he knew he was on a mission, and he had to uncover every possibility. So in walks David. Now, those of you who have been around a while, and, and you have heard my sermons, my sermons and messages, and whatever I'm doing, I'm teaching for a long time. You know that I love David. I love him. I saw the beautiful Michelangelo the David. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is perfection chiseled by Michelangelo. So in walks David. Now I'm going to tell you what the scripture says. I'm not making this up. It says he was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. Well, he's got the outward appearance too, doesn't he? And Samuel responds, this is the one. Because here's what he could do. He could go beyond that tall, well, I don't know how tall he was, but he was, he was dark and he was handsome and had beautiful eyes. And Samuel could go through that because the Lord was guiding him with that radar vision. And he knew this is the one. And I could not agree more. Samuel then anointed David with oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. See, God anointed him then that it's going to be many, many years before David actually gets to serve as king. But he gets, got the anointing first because see, Saul still is acting as king. But we know his time is limited. But there is a whole lot that needs to happen before David actually is going to reign on the throne. Remember now how Saul got a new heart from God? And remember how God selected Saul as the first king of Israel because he had what it takes. But what did Saul do with what God gave him? He squandered it. He focused on himself. So God moved on. And then David is anointed to be king. But he will be living in the wait. He's going to wait a long time to actually begin to rule. And there is much that's going to happen in the in-between. You know, that's where we find ourselves many times, isn't it? Living in the in-between, in the wait. We know God has something big planned because we trust Him. This is where David was. He, he knew God had a big plan and a purpose for him. And he, and he knew he needed to trust him. And it would be revealed upon a given day that he did not know. 
And that's where we are many times. We're living in that in-between time. We're waiting for news from the doctor. We're waiting, waiting for news from a child or from a spouse or from a friend. We're waiting about a job. We're waiting about a house. We're, we're waiting to learn more about our finances. We're waiting for a friendship. We're waiting for the love of our life. We're waiting just to get an answer to something to guide us in the next step of our life. We're waiting. And what we want to do in that wait is to stay tuned to the heart of God. That's the test, isn't it? Saul didn't do that. David will do that. And that's what we want to do with our very patient God. He will give us our answers in due time, and it, it may be, yes, I'm bestowing this blessing upon you, or we need to wait a little longer, or no. This is not for you. And that's where we need to wait patiently on God. And while we're waiting, we want to be mindful to set aside all those things that will hinder us from having our heart connected to God. This is what Saul didn't do. He held on to that pride and that disobedience. And he didn't, in the meantime, let go of the things that were preventing him from being connected to God. So back to Saul, who is still the king. We're reading in 1 Samuel 16, verses 14 to 23. Now the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul. That's a scary place to be, isn't it? If the Spirit of the Lord leaves. And the Lord sent then a tormenting spirit that filled him with depression and fear. Some of Saul's servants said to him, A tormenting spirit from God is troubling you. Let us find a good musician to play the harp whenever this tormenting spirit troubles you. He will play smoothing, soothing music and you will soon be well again. Well, now what's happened to Saul? He has this tormenting spirit. Maybe he was depressed. Or maybe when the spirit of the Lord left, God allowed this evil spirit to torment him because of judgment for his disobedience. We don't know. Nevertheless, Saul was driven to madness. Now we're going to see where this madness takes him. Harps were very popular in the day, and we know they can be soothing at our own women's ministry, at our teas, at our dinners. We have a harpist who comes, and we enjoy that beautiful, soft, relaxing, soothing music. Well, David was known for his shepherding skills and his bravery, but he is also an accomplished musician, a harpist. And he's the author of music, as we read in the Psalms. Oh, our David does have it all, doesn't he? Cue the swoon. <laughs> okay, Saul says, All right, find me someone who plays well and bring him here. One of the servants said to Saul, One of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented harp player. Not only that, he's a brave warrior, a man of war, and has good judgment. He's also a fine-looking young man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent his messengers to Jesse to say, Send me your son David the shepherd. Jesse responded by sending David to Saul along with a young goat, a donkey loaded with bread, and a wineskin full of wine. So David went to Saul and began serving him. Saul loved David very much, and David became his armor bearer. Now, when Saul asked for David to come to serve him, he did not know that David has been anointed king. So look at this opportunity 
in the wait. David can be his understudy to the king without the king knowing it. He can get information about the nation and the army and the enemy. See, God goes before us, doesn't he? And this was God's plan to put David as ruler on hold while he is in the wait. He's preparing him. Sometimes our plans are put on hold and we're in that waiting period and he will use the experiences in the waiting period to help mold us and shape us and prepare us. And then Saul sent word to Jesse asking, please let David remain in my service for I'm very pleased with him. And whenever the tormenting spirit from God troubled Saul, David would play the harp. Then Saul would feel much better and the tormenting spirit would go away. So we see the plan to move out the old and bring in the new, all because Saul chose poorly. You know, let's do some self-reflection here. Because Saul didn't recognize his blind spots of pride and disobedience. And they got the best of him. Is that happening to any of us? Because we certainly want to get a hold of that now or in the waiting period we're in. We too sometimes justify our bad decisions and we try to negotiate with God and we often let the culture sweep us away. In what ways do we elevate the opinions of other people above the wisdom and the love of God? And in what ways do we shift blame in order to avoid truly owning our failures? See, Saul didn't do that self-reflection and that's where we want to hone in and do that. And when we don't, we may be guilty of selfism or narcissism or egocentric bias. See, that's a term that was coined by a psychologist Anthony Greenfield and it describes people who filter everything through their self-reference. They assume others just share their own perspective and, and they just don't imagine people having their own ideas and perceptions and situations. And these egocentric people are much like narcissists. They both lack empathy and their concern uh, with how others view them constantly and they, they make decisions around their own self-needs. And in addition, the narcissist has this excessive need for recognition and ad admiration. They feel really entitled and, and they begin to manipulate others to do what they want. They're arrogant and pretentious. Sounds quite a bit like Saul, doesn't it? Now, we may not categorize ourselves as a narcissist or an egocentric, but to what degree are we self-centered? Here's how self-centeredness is defined. Immoderate concern with one's own interest in well-being, self-love, or egotism. The Bible tells us people who are self-centered just aren't able to please God. And that's a sin because it leads to being devoted <clears throat> to our own self-gratification and overlooking other people's needs and what God would have for us to do. Now, this seems to be a natural part of us to be concerned of self. And it starts with a baby who's, who is reliant upon others to take care of every single need. And, and we're supposed to move out of that as, as we grow older. Jesus uses our innate self-interest as a basis for gauging our love for others because he tells us, love your neighbors as yourself because he wants us to love ourselves. So that's natural for us to do that. But he wants us to love others as well. 
you know, we become very self-centric instead of other-centric and God-centric. Philippians 2 tells us, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others. See, there's no room for self-centeredness. The Bible teaches just the opposite. It tells us to love and care for others. It says, don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. It tells us in Romans 12, love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Galatians 5 tells us, let's not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. The biggest challenge that we face in serving the Lord is just us. It's in us. It's not our family we're going to blame or our work that we should blame or our enemies or our friends. Even though they can present in us challenges and obstacles, but we get in the way of our own pursuit of holiness. It's our own desires and our choices and our priorities that lead us to our own predicaments. It goes back to the simple law of sowing and reaping. What we sow leads to a predictable result. King Saul was a man who allowed his heart to be filled with pride and jealousy and fear and anger revealing a lack of real faith in God. Saul's actions revealed to us that he didn't have a true, real understanding of God or what faith is. His pride and his lack of faith and his disobedience to God blinded him spiritually. It's what allowed Saul to journey through life on the road that led away from blessings and towards a life of anger and fear and regret and great loss even though God had given him a new heart. What matters to God is the heart and the obedience that flows from that. What matters is how we respond in our hearts. You know, in the end, it's how you finish life's journey that truly matters. I don't know how many of you remember in 1988 watching the Summer Olympics in South Korea, but Ben Johnson of Canada won that 100 meter dash, setting a new Olympic record and a new world record. We had an American contender, Carl Lewis, who, who came in second. Most people were shocked that he hadn't won the gold. After the race, the judges learned that Johnson had an illegal substance in his body. Ben Johnson ran the race illegally, so the judges took away his medal. He ran faster, and he made an unforgettable impression, but he did not deserve the win. Then, over in a different race, and, and hours behind the runner in front of him, the last man marathoner finally entered the Olympic Stadium. By that time, the drama of the day's events was almost over, and most of the spectators had gone home, and the athlete's story here was still being played out. Limping into the arena, the Tanzanian runner grimaced with every step. His knee was bleeding and bandaged from an earlier fall, and his ragged appearance immediately caught the attention of the remaining crowd, and they were cheering him on over the finish line. Why did he stay in the race? What made him endure those injuries and keep going on? When he was asked these questions, here's how he replied. 
My country did not send me 7,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 7,000 miles to finish the race. That's what he did. He finished the race. The story of Saul is tragic and sad and so unnecessary. God raised up Saul to finish his race, and he gave him everything he needed to succeed as king. Saul brought himself down because of his foolish choices, and he did not finish the race. It's the same for us today. God's given us everything we need. First of all, he gave his son, Jesus, to give us salvation. And then he gave us the Holy Spirit to live within us and help us to grow in our faith. He gave us his word to guide us and keep us on the right path. And like Saul, if we fall, it's not God's fault. It's our own fault because of the choices we make. We want to choose well and finish our race well. There was another Saul in Scripture who became Paul, and he was also gifted by God, and he was given a new heart, and he set out on a race to finish. Near the end of his life, Paul writes this, I fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. The apostle wrote these words near the end of his life, and there were three statements he made. I fought, I have finished, and I have kept the faith. Now he's not commending himself for having run the full distance. He's simply describing what God had enabled him to do. He says later on in another book in Acts, I consider my life worth nothing to me if I only may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Paul is telling Timothy that he put everything in his race. He was running to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was completing the race set before him. He set aside anything that would hinder him from proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And that's what we need to do also. We too want to lay aside our pride, our selfism, our disobedience, our stubbornness, our impatience, our rebellion, and our selective hearing. Let's do the things that God would have us to do and set aside any impediment that keeps us from finishing our race well. Let's not be like Saul. Let's be like Paul and finish strong. Oh God, our Father, thank you so much for our lesson today on Saul. Oh, what we can learn from him about keeping our heart connected to you and, and recognizing the errors of our ways and, and, and re-getting on our, our course for you again once we have failed you. Help us to be challenged today now to set aside any impediment that keeps us from running your race. Help us to commit once again to living a life totally in for you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Looking forward to being back next week when we'll hear more about David.